In just a moment, I'll be in the book of Luke, chapter 12. That'll be the first passage up this evening, Luke, chapter 12. We're so glad that you came back for the second part of the sermon I started this morning about how questions in Scripture need our personal attention. Jesus very often used questions to arrest the attention of his listeners. And we believe the Holy Spirit, having those questions recorded in Scripture, intends for us to examine ourselves through these very pointed questions. We had five this morning, five more tonight. And for the first, I need for our attention <clears throat> to be in Luke chapter 12. We studied Luke chapter 12 in an adult Bible class a few weeks ago. We're back in Luke 12 for a point we're going to make tonight to begin the study. Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you, then, are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The context that is introduced in the opening verse of this section is food and clothing. Now, what if you were to open the Bible up and just concentrate on what God wants you to do about food and clothing? What would you discover? One of the first things you would discover, one of the first things we all need to hear from God about food and clothing is an assignment of personal responsibility to us about those things. To take initiative 
to provide food and clothing for ourselves and those we have responsibility for. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about this and they'll use the phrase the work ethic as if this were some function of culture or human evolution. The truth is God made man to accept responsibility. He made us capable of accepting responsibility for food and clothing. Have you noticed on the opening pages of the Bible, Adam and Eve, before their sin, had responsibility. They were charged by God to take care of the garden for their nourishment. Have you noticed that in the law of Moses, over and over, God assigned responsibility to the people to work, to take care of themselves, and not be dependent upon others. And then in the New Testament, Paul, writing to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 4.28, according to the New International Version, said, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, even stronger than that, in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, Paul said to the Christians in Thessalonica, The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So what do we gather from all this? When it comes to the food and necessary clothing that we need, God says, go to work. Do what you are able to do. Accept responsibility. But here's what we often do. Even after we read all of that and we see that God has assigned responsibility to us about food and clothing, there is this dangerous tendency to think that we need to accompany our work with the same amount of worry. So you work this much and you worry this much. You work this much and you worry this much. That seems to be a tendency that is very much alive today. That worry will somehow enhance your ability to produce. Jesus says no. And this is where his question punctuates his point. Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his span of life. Here's his point that could be stated in three words. Worry adds nothing. Worry adds nothing. Now, this doesn't rule out any form of legitimate responsibility, which would include planning and concern and being wise about choices but when I do exactly what God tells me to do to the full capacity of my ability, I don't need to supplement what God told me to do with the same amount of worry. Jesus simply said, don't do that. Maybe one of the hardest things he said from our standpoint. 
if God finds ways of providing for birds and flowers, it says here He'll take care of His people. Now, that may not mean that you are able to get the latest model car. There may be struggles that distract us before they discipline us, but it isn't necessary to accompany our work with an equal amount of worry or any worry. Such a good question for our times. Why do you worry? Which of you? It's like Jesus is saying to the crowd, raise your hand now if this has ever worked for you. Which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his span of life? So, trust in God. And that means you take every bit of responsibility God has assigned to you about food and clothing, and then you rest in His care and seek first the kingdom. Second question for tonight. This is from Romans chapter 6. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I want you to look with me in Romans, the latter part of chapter 5, the last couple of verses in chapter 5, into chapter 6. It's very enlightening. Because there is a flow of thought near the end of Romans 5 that becomes the lead idea that takes you into chapter 6. And identifying how 5 flows into 6 makes the study of chapter 6 easier. <clears throat> so near the end of chapter 5, Paul makes the point that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's in verse 20 of chapter 5. Now mark that because it's going to lead you into chapter 6. And you can think of it this way. God's grace through the gospel of Christ not only takes the respondent out of sin. More than just that, God's grace enables and empowers the obedient believer through the Word to serve Him after baptism. So what you have is not just grace, but abundant grace, and you might add another superlative, superabundant grace. But in chapter 6, Paul anticipates an argument or a thought that might occur to somebody about superabundant grace. Paul anticipates an argument that might be called playing the grace card as permission to continue in sin. And Paul says, don't do that. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Some might want to make that argument since there is so much grace from God. I'll just continue in sin knowing there is sufficient grace to cover it. Paul says, don't think that way. By no means. If you have the old King James, it'll say, God forbid. That means God doesn't want you to think that. And he goes on. Paul does. 
How can we die to sin by obeying the gospel of Christ, but then live in it? What sense does it make to let Christ get you out of the mire of sin, and then because of that grace, jump back into it? And then Paul explains, in baptism we receive the benefit of Christ's death, baptized into Christ. At the same time, we die to sin, leaving that way of life for a better way of life that God provides. Grace then saved us, but will we jump back into what we were saved from? Grace cannot be offered as a reason to resume the sinful living that grace got you out of. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No. Now, what does that mean to us? I think it means while I must constantly be thankful for God's mercy and love and grace, I must never let that truth become an excuse to sin. I must never let that truth become permission to sin or permission to take a careless view of sin. One of the risks, I think, of living in the world is, and all of our media today, you see so much sin. You can begin to think it is so common, it is just natural, and the next process in that thought might be to just accept it. Everybody sins. Sin is all around us, and eventually, if you follow that train of thought, you're going to be participating and celebrating sin. We know God is gracious. The temptation is to think, God's grace will cover it, so I'll just do what God's grace covers. To that sort of thinking, Paul responds, No, God forbid... And then there is the call to baptized people to walk in newness of life. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer to this question is no. Back in the book of Psalms, chapter 119 and verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young man... Keep his way pure. We're just going to look at the question for a minute, and the answer is given. How can a young man keep his way pure? Think for a moment about what you would consider the right answer to be, and now listen again. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to to the word. So the answer is given right after the question. Now, about this question, your thought might be, well, this is written for young men. Well, maybe not. It is about young men. But let's admit the possibility this was written also for mature men who seek to reach and teach young men and can give them this question and answer and perhaps add to it their voice of experience 
At any rate, the question is answered. There isn't any way a young man can maintain purity of character without the Word of God. What young men need, God provides in His Word. Now, here's a, here's a follow-up question. Is it any different for anybody else? Is there a way that young men keep themselves pure that is different from young women? Is there a way that young men keep themselves pure that's different for middle-aged men or older men? Let's work on that a moment. Just off the top of your head, what if you made a list of what young people need? Uh, most of us who are older could immediately come up with that. We know what young people need. Ah, oh, those young people. We know what they need. We can make a list. Responsibility, integrity, moral purity, discernment, discipline, reverence for God. You want me to continue? We can make a list. Now, no matter your age or gender, where do you get those things? Those things are products of one's contact with God through His Word. Not just young men, young women, older men, older women. This is a purity subject here. It is addressed to young men, but purity has its origin in the same source for everybody. How can a young man stay on the path of purity, the NIV says. And the answer is given by living according to your word. To God's Word. In the book of Job, if a man die, shall he live again? It is doubtful that Job was the only Old Testament person to contemplate this question. But under the pressure of his suffering, he was eloquent in expressing the questions that occur to many people over the whole span of time from the beginning until now. If a man die, shall he live again? All through the Bible, the writers speak of death. When the body can no longer tolerate the ravages of time and disease, the spirit departs to await the final resurrection, for this is the end of all men, Ecclesiastes 7, 2. In the New Testament, Jesus came to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So the question has occurred to people since the very beginning of death, if a man die, shall he live again? And the question could be expressed, what about a resurrection? Jesus answers Job's question. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he that believeth in me, though he die, shall live again. John eleven twenty five. 25. 
Jesus is the answer to Job's question in John 5, 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Jesus answers Job's question according to 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. This is all about hope that Jesus gives. Hope is what Christianity is about. It is the one mental mechanism which reaches off into the future and attaches itself to that which we desire and long for and which through faith we expect to receive. So, what shall I do then with Jesus? You may have heard preachers deal with this on many other occasions. What will you do with Jesus? The scribes and Pharisees rejected Him. The Romans assisted in executing Him. Pilate gave up an innocent man. Many today call Him Lord, we noted this morning, but without obedience. So the question needs to be understood personally. What will you do with Jesus? We must do three things. Take the time to read what the Bible says about Him. Weigh the evidence, especially as you read books like the Gospel of John. And then respond to Him. Beginning in baptism and in obedience, walking in newness of life, appreciating the grace of God, not taking advantage of it. And when I say respond to Him, I don't mean just do anything, do what the Bible says you ought to do in response to Him. Let the apostles and the New Testament writers tell you what to do. Believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Those conditions are written all through the book of Acts. And then, in all your conduct and attitude and responses to people and to events, be obedient to Jesus Christ. He is your only access to heaven. Well, what we've done today, we have reviewed ten questions that are not Berkeley questions. They were given by the Holy Spirit written in Scripture for us to look at ourselves and for us to help others look at themselves and be ready ourselves and others to make whatever adjustments God expects. I'm sure you know that 10 does not exhaust the questions in Scripture. There are many others and I hope now when we come to those other questions we'll do what we did this morning and tonight. We will enjoy the good exercise of discipline with self-examination. James 4.14, what is your life? Exodus 4 and verse 2, who is Jehovah that I should hearken unto His voice? John 18.38, what is truth? 
Ecclesiastes 1.3, What profit hath man of all his labor wherein he laboreth under the sun? Or Matthew 22.36, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? I want to urge every one of us, when we read Scripture and we listen to God in Scripture, let these questions sink in and become avenues into your heart and into your life to be certain that you are right with God to the best of your present ability. Let's be standing as we sing. The Lord shall sound and time shall be no more.